Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend and welcome everybody watching online and the Montrose building and our live sites. Thanks for joining us as well. We're in a series right now called No Additives, No Preservatives, No Artificial Flavors. And what we're doing is we're, we're talking about a certain kind of key foundational ideas that are expressed through the scripture that are kind of questioned sometimes. They, every once in a while, somebody will have a new idea or they'll recycle really an ancient idea or they'll come up with something out of the blue and fire a tweet off and then suddenly it's this big conversation in Christianum. And so <clears throat> all that's kind of fine, I guess. People can have their own opinions, but we want to look back and say, do those things line up with God's word? Do they line up with what we call Christian orthodoxy, with the, what the church has for centuries believed that what was meant by what God said in a particular part of Scripture? And should those be ideas that we kind of uh, take and embrace and think through and, and bring into our own thinking? Or should those be things that we discard, that we push off and say, uh, we, don't, we don't believe that those are correct or accurate? So we've been digging at those here for the last... Uh, a couple weeks, and we've talked about some of these core things like salvation. What is salvation? Why do we need it? Where does it come from? How do you receive it? That would be like a core teaching. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. And we said, who's the Holy Spirit? How does he interact with us? How does he want us to interact with him? And what role does the Holy Spirit play in our lives? Uh, last weekend, we had, a, we called a big God conversation. And we just asked the question, like, who, what's the purpose of God? What's the purpose of man? And we boiled that down to a, a question. Do I exist for God or does God exist for me? And we said, however we answer that question really determines uh, the path of our, of our spiritual journey. So all those conversations are out online and there's a podcast and they're on the app and they're on the website. And uh, encourage you, if you've never kind of delved deep into those questions, that's probably something that would be good to do and find those foundational teachings and uh, make sure that you're rooted uh, in God's word and in strong doctrine or strong orthodoxy. So this weekend, I, I wanna continue that conversation and we wanna have another big God conversation. And I wanna talk to you about an idea that's a really big concept, kind of a deep, sometimes hard to get your head around concept, but it's a foundational concept. If this isn't rooted in your belief system and in your view of God, then, then it really kind of unplugs who Christ is and what he's like. So I want to talk to you about that question, who is Christ? Or another way to say this is I want to teach you about the doctrine of the incarnation, okay? So that's what you get for coming to church on a holiday weekend. You get me talking to you about the doctrine of the incarnation. And so we're going to talk about this doctrine. What I'm going to do is I'm going to teach it to you. I'm going to show you some kind of ways that in, in our modern world it's presented in a misaligned way. And then I'm going to tell you why that's important to you. Because believe it or not, uh, even though it sounds like this really heady, Bible nerdy kind of a conversation, your view and your belief of the doctrine of the incarnation actually affects your everyday life. And how you walk with God, how you interact with God, how you would make decisions, view the Bible, all those kind of things. So it's that kind of foundational to what we're talking about. And it's one of the truths of Scripture that has actually been under kind of attack, so to say, since the beginning. 
And so right away, it, the false teachers, the evil one, and, and other leaders have looked and said, if you can unplug the doctrine of the incarnation, you can change who Jesus is, and you can kind of go down all kinds of crazy paths with it. So it's one of those things that we need to know and understand and get our, our head around, okay? So on a high level, who is Jesus? What is the doctrine of the incarnation? The doctrine of the incarnation would simply say this, that while Jesus was on earth, he was incarnate or God in the flesh or what I like to say, God with skin on, okay? And when Jesus was on earth and he was God with skin on, while he was here, he was still God. He was 100% God while being 100% human. He did not set aside his divinity. He didn't cease to be God while he was on the planet. But he was 100% God, 100% human. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with skin on. Okay, so let's talk about this for a little bit because it's a big concept and it's kind of hard to get our head around it. So we would go to passages like Philippians chapter 2 and we would see the incarnation playing out. So Paul says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus, being in very nature God, was equal with God, but he made himself nothing. The old translations say he emptied himself. That does not mean that he set aside his deity. It means that he laid aside his rights. He had the right to stay in heaven. He had the right not to deal with us. He had the right to let us suffer the consequences or the wages of our sin. But he laid that aside and he made himself a servant taking the likeness of a man. God put skin on. He stepped out of heaven he went through the human experience, born of a virgin in a cave, and then lived in that humility as a demonstration and as an act of his love. But he was fully God and fully man through that process. Another place that we would look is John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Uh, the term word is one of the names that the Bible calls Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The older translations say, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. You may be familiar with that. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. Jesus came to earth and dwelt among us, okay? So he is fully God and fully man. He's the incarnate God. He did not set aside his deity to come to the planet. He kind of brought that with him. And so while here he's fully God, fully man. Let me try to put it to you this way. This is a, this is a very limited illustration. So just take it for what it is, but it'll help us, I think, maybe a little bit get our head around it, okay? So I have the ability to be two people simultaneously without ever ceasing to be the other one, right? So I have the ability <clears throat> to be two people simultaneously without ceasing to be the other one. So I have the ability to be fully a husband 
and fully a father. I do not have to set aside being a husband to be a father, and I don't have to set aside being a father to be a husband. And depending on the circumstances, one of those identities may be the one that plays out the most at a given time, but when it plays out, I don't surrender the other one, right? So last year was Heidi and I's 25th wedding anniversary, and I threw a surprise for her and kidnapped her, and I took her to Hawaii for a romantic getaway for our 25th wedding anniversary. We've been trying to go for 20 years, but we had kids, and they took all of our money and our joy. So we weren't able to do that, <clears throat> so we went. And when Heidi and I went on our trip, I was fully a husband, right? We, we were away, just the two of us, being on a special trip. I didn't cease to be a father, but the kids weren't with me. You would have only seen me illustrating my husbandry on that trip, right? Because I'm fully a husband, fully a father, but I don't surrender the one or stop being the one. You just see the, the, the primary one on display. You can flip that role, okay? So sometimes being a father is fully on display. So last week was our oldest son's birthday. So we had a birthday gathering at the house. We were sitting around the table and uh, talking, goofing off with all the kids. And one of my sons says to me, because he's mouthy, he said to me, he goes, Dad, you're old and fat. He said, I think I can take you now. We should wrestle. <laughs> and I said, I, don't, I looked at his brother, his oldest brother. I said, I don't want to wrestle on your brother's birthday and steal all the thunder of your brother's birthday. To which his brother said, oh, I want to see this happen. <laughs> right? And so I tried to bail out to Heidi, and I was like, well, I would wrestle, but your mom will be upset. She doesn't like it. She doesn't want the birthday celebration ruined. To which Heidi said, oh, I'll videotape it. <laughs> right? So we, we went downstairs to our family room. We cleared out the, the furniture, and he and I wrestled. And it started like it usually does when I wrestle him with me body slamming him. And it kind of never stopped from there. And so I held him down and I wouldn't let him up until he said, I love you, daddy. Right. That's kind of the tap out phrase. And I was fully father. Don't tell him, but I, in about six months, I'm not going to be able to take him anymore, but don't tell him that. But we wrestled. I'm fully father. Right. That is me on display as a father. I found out the hard way, Heidi doesn't like to wrestle in the family room. If I was fully father in our relationship, she'd be like, what are you doing? And then I would be on the ground pinned saying, I love you, daddy, right? That, that's how that would play out, right? And the kids don't want to go on a romantic getaway trip with us. Like they would be like, ew, gross, right? So they don't want that to happen. There are times when me being a husband is most on display and times when me being a father is on display, but you don't sacrifice either one of those roles. There's times in the scripture where you see the deity of Jesus primarily on display. He's healing someone. He's turning water into wine. He's raising somebody from the dead. And you would look and say, man, only God could do that, right? He's fully God. There's other times in the scripture where you see the humanity of Jesus primarily on display. He's tired, he's hungry. The clearest display is the cross, where his body is broken, he is beaten, he is mocked, he is crucified. His humanity is at the, the forefront because he could have exercised his deity and stopped it and didn't, right? So he's fully God, 
He's fully man, and we call that the incarnation. Uh, the theologians would say it this way. They would say he's fully God, fully man. He's completely God, completely man. A, a famous theologian, a guy named Gruden, said this. He said, remaining who he was, he became who he was not. He didn't cease to be. He added, so to say, to his, to his deity, his humanity. Hebrews would tell us that. 13, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't change because he's God. And so he was God before he came to earth. He was God while he was on earth. He is God now that he's sitting at the right hand, not at earth, not on earth. He is the same through all of those things. Uh, here's a, a diagram that might help us. When we talk about this, we talk about God, we talked about the Trinity. Um, if, you, if you're unsure about that, a great conversation will be that one we had on the Holy Spirit. We talked a lot about the Trinity there. But we would look and say God is one thing that is three things, like an egg. An egg has a shell, a white, a yolk. It's one thing that's three things. God is one thing that is three things. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all God. When Jesus came to earth and he lived among us, he didn't step outside of the circle. He didn't say, you know what, I'll put my deity on layaway. Guys, hold on to it for a minute. I'll be back in about 33 years, right? That's not what he did. He didn't step outside of the circle. <clears throat> what he did was he brought his humanity into the circle. He was the God man, fully God, fully man. 100% God, did not surrender his deity, 100% human so that we could understand him. Hebrews says we have a high priest that sympathizes with us. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted. He, 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 he endured and experienced the human experience and he put skin on and allows us to understand him. I under, the, lo, the love of God is so greater and other and more than I could ever get my head around it the way that I understand the love of God is how it's presented to me through the humanity of Jesus. That the forgiveness of God is greater than, more than I could ever remotely get my head around. The way that I understand and translate the forgiveness of God is through the forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus, in essence, kind of makes God make sense to us. And so when he put flesh on, he did that in part so that we could know him and understand him. But he did not surrender his deity. He added his humanity. Now, this is very important. I, I, I know it sounds like I'm drilling down on like a detail, but it's an important detail. I'll show you how this is kind of atta attacked here in a, in a little bit, why it's important. But we need and want Jesus to be fully God, fully man. That truth is foundational to all that we would believe as a Christian, okay? And, and it's a rock solid truth. Why is it foundational? Well, for instance, this truth is what made Jesus worthy to be our savior. <clears throat> if Jesus was not fully God, if he was simply fully man, he would not be worthy to be our savior. The apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter two, for in Christ we have, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in the bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So Paul says in Christ, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all the fullness of God is in bodily form in Jesus. And in his place of divinity, 
he is able to bring us to fullness in him. It's because he's God that he can forgive our sins, right? Now, many would say, many would agree that Jesus is a great moral leader and great moral teacher. Hardly anybody will have a problem with what Jesus did, thought, or taught until they get to him being God, and then they'll tap out. Say, so now you're crossing a line. He's a great moral teacher. He's a great moral example. Uh, <clears throat> Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr. Like we would look and say, yeah, the great moral man, great moral teacher. We should follow the parts of his morality that increase our morality. Well, the problem is this. If I'm a great moral person, I cannot forgive sin. Okay? So as a, as a great moral person, I can forgive sin if you've committed it against me, right? If you did something to me, I could look at you and say, I forgive you for that. I can forgive sin that I've committed within myself. If I looked at myself and I was like emotionally healthy, I could look and say, you know, the stuff I did when I was a kid is not going to define the rest of my life. I'm going to forgive myself for that is how we would say it. So I can forgive sin that you've committed to me. I can forgive sin that I've committed to myself, so to say. What I cannot do is forgive sin in which I'm a third party. So when Billy sins against Susie and I step in as a moral leader and say, you know what, Billy, your sins against Susie are forgiven. Susie's going to pipe up and say, well, who are you to forgive? It didn't happen to you. Billy didn't hurt you. Billy didn't wound you. There's no emotional scars in your life from Billy. Who are you to forgive Billy? You're not involved with Billy. So how can you forgive a sin that did not happen to you or that you did not commit to yourself? You're just, a, I mean, I appreciate your example, but who are you to do that? Now, when you look at Christ, Jesus did this all the time. When he met the woman at the well, he looked at her and he said, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Well, none of those sins involved Jesus. She had committed adultery and had a bunch of broken marriages and done whatever Jesus knew. And so he's like, I forgive your sins. Well, none of them were against him. None of them involved him. He just met her. When he looked at the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He in essence forgave him of his sins. Well, the thief on the cross isn't on the cross because he did something to Jesus. It's the Romans that are upset with the thief on the cross, not Jesus. So who is Jesus to forgive his sins? He's not involved in a sin, see? So I can be a great moral leader, and we can, we can look at someone's morality, and we can properly celebrate that morality. Like, it, it's proper that we honor Dr. King on Martin Luther King Day because of what he stood for and what he did. We would be like, hey, that... that that is worthy to remember and to emulate. But Dr. King never even remotely said, I forgive you of your sin. We look at Mother Teresa and say, man, I'm so convicted about my materialism. Look what she did with her life and how she lived. And we would look and say, right, she's a, she's a wonderful moral example. She never absolved people of their sin. She never stood up and said, I forgive you of your materialism. She never did that, Right? Why would Christ do that? Because he's God. And when I sin, who, who the primary 
offended person is, the first holder of my sin debt is not the human that I sinned against, it's the holy God that I sinned against. The woman at the well didn't sin against the husbands that she was unfaithful to. They weren't in the first position to hold that debt. Jesus was in the first position to hold that debt. So he could say, I forgive you for what you did to me, your holy God. The thief on the cross, the first position in the sin debt of the thief on the cross was Christ, not the Romans. So Jesus could say, I forgive you. Today you will be with me in paradise because he is God. A moral person on the cross cannot provide forgiveness for our sin. Only God on that cross can, can do that, right? Now what happens is if you take Jesus' deity away, not only is the cross like powerless, but Jesus' claims are ludicrous. They're just insane, the stuff that he says. This is the other thing, without this truth, Jesus is just a great human being with, with no divine power. So when he makes these outrageous claims, he's just nuts if he's just merely a good moral person. An example would be like John 10, where Jesus says about his own life, he says, no one takes my, my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from the Father. You could look and say a moral person has the authority to lay their own life down. We would celebrate that as heroic, right? So we, we would look at a, a, a police officer or a firefighter who jumped in between somebody to protect them or went into a burning building to save them. And if they died in the line of duty, we would celebrate their sacrifice and we would memorialize them because we would say they had the right to lay their life down. They chose to lay their life down like that. That's why we celebrate our fallen soldiers. That's why we celebrate like a Martin, uh, 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 Martin Luther King, Dr. King, because he, he gave his life to the cause, so to say, that he, that he was celebrating. We would be like, man, he had the authority to do that. He was willing to do that. That's incredible. And we would say, we need to celebrate and remember that because we should be more like that, right? So when Jesus says, I have the authority to lay my life down, there's nothing nuts about that. There's lots of heroic things about that. It's the second part that's crazy. And I have the authority to take it up again. No moral person was like, you know what? If you shoot me down, I'll raise myself from the dead again in three days. We would look and say, that's, that's insane. I don't, I don't care how good of a person you are, you don't have the authority to bring yourself back from the dead. And Jesus would look at us and say, right, I, I'm not a moral person, I'm God. I wrote the laws of nature. I can suspend them and bend them at my own will. They, they yield to me. I don't yield to them. You're a part of nature. You yield to those laws. I don't. I'm God. So we needed and wanted God to give his life on that cross. God incarnate. It's through his flesh that we understand his sacrifice. It's through his flesh that we would interpret his love. We would look and say, man, whoever 
whoever endured what Christ endured in his passion and suffering, when he had the power to tap out if he wanted to, but he endured it for us, man, that is the ultimate display of his love for me. But the power to forgive sin and the power to resurrect has nothing to do, so to say, with his humanity. It has to do with his deity. He is 100% God and he is 100% human, okay? Christ incarnate. Now, that truth is foundational to everything. You, you pull that out or you minimize Jesus' deity. If you say, well, he just set it aside and he came to earth, he lived as a human, and then he took his deity back up again when he went back to heaven. We've minimized Jesus' deity. If you minimize his deity while he's on earth, you minimize it all the way across. And that truth is key and everything kind of rests on it. And it's so key to understanding who Christ is that from the very beginning, after Christ died and rose again, that truth has been under attack. Because false prophets and deceivers and teachers and even the evil one knows if I can unravel that, I can unravel the whole thing. If I can just get people to demote Jesus as less than God, I can, I can strip all the power of Jesus out of their lives. They, they won't follow a mere mortal. They won't worship that if I can just peel that away. This teaching is an ancient teaching, so much so that before the Bible was even finished, the apostles were dealing with it. So the apostle John's one of the disciples, Jesus' best friend, he wrote several books of the Bible. One of the books he wrote was 2 John, right? So in 2 John, uh, John says this, he's addressing this very thing with the early church. And he says this, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch out that you do not, uh, we do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The teaching, the doctrine of the incarnation that Jesus is God and he came in the flesh, that Jesus as God rose again in the flesh. It wasn't the spirit or the concept of Jesus, it was the bodily resurrection. Anybody that comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So John comes right out of the gate. I mean, the Bible's not even done yet and this is being questioned. And he's like, listen, I'm a disciple. I'll pull that card. I'm an apostle. I'll pull that card. I'm Jesus' best friend. I'll pull that card. And I took care of his mom after she died. I'll pull that card. I am telling you with all authority, if anybody says he is less than fully God, fully man, they are deceiving you. Do not let that, we would say, doctrine be displaced. Because if it is, then you have demoted Christ. And you'll see here in a minute, when you demote Christ, what you do is you promote yourself, right? And it gets all out of whack, okay? Now, this teaching is ancient, and what it does is every couple hundred years, it recycles itself in a, in a different form. 
and it, and it will show up kind of in our, um, kind of before us in, in a way that it hasn't shown up before. So in the last 150-ish years or so, this, this degrading of the doctrine of the incarnation has come up again. It's kind of always there, but it has taken on kind of some modern presentations, and they're modern presentations that you and I would kind of interact with all the time. And John would say, be careful when you see this, that what that teaching is, is not this teaching. And if someone comes without this teaching, they're not coming with God. You need to know that. So watch out and be alert for that so that you can discern between those two things, okay? So a couple of the modern forms, it, it, there's actually a ton of them, but a couple that we would interact with kind of on a regular basis would be things like this. Uh, one of the modern forms that would, that would look and say, uh, Jesus was not who he says he was. They would not believe in the doctrine of incarnation that we would be real familiar with is Mormonism. In Mormonism, uh, they would not believe in the doctrine of the incarnation, right? So uh, in the Mormon church, what they would teach is this, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are actually three different gods. They don't, they don't believe in the Trinity, and so they would look and say, God the Father is a God, and then there's a second God, God the Son, that's a different God, and then a third God, God the Holy Spirit, that's a, that's a third God. And that they are different and they are not equal. So God the Father is kind of in charge, and God the Son is born of the Father. He's not equal to the Father, he's born of the Father, right? So think about it this way, I, uh, Heidi and I have five sons, my sons are born of me. They, they have parts of me in them, but, but they're not me. Jesus is saying there's an equality, that I and the Father am one. I'm not born of, I'm not a lesser version of, I'm not a different version of, but I am God. And so Mormonism would be, be something that would be really familiar to us. And what would happen is you would bump into Colossians chapter two, Colossians chapter two, verse nine, where Paul says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He's not a, a demoted version or a lesser version or a different version. He is God incarnate. All of the fullness of the deity lives in Christ, okay? Now, Paul would say, uh, or John, I'm sorry, would say, hey, just watch out for that because this is what happens. Most of us have friends that are, are Mormon. We would probably have Mormon friends. And what would happen is we would look at like the Mormon church or Mormon friends and we would say, it seems like we agree on most things. And we, we agree that on moralistic values. So they would agree that we should try to have strong marriages. We agree with that. Uh, they would agree that family is important. We would agree with that. They, they would be pro-life, we're pro-life. Like those kind of things. Like we would look and say on these moralistic values, we're in great, great agreement. And that's absolutely true. If you press in and say, how do you get to heaven? Right, the first thing we talked about in this series. H how is salvation received? We would not agree because we don't believe, we don't agree on the doctrine of the incarnation. If you press in and said, what about the Holy Spirit? We, we cannot agree. Why not? Because of the doctrine of the incarnation. If you pull that out and you shift who Jesus is, 
then he cannot do what he says he can do. We have to add things in order to receive salvation or to understand God, right? Now, it's not because somebody's a, uh, that your friends are jerks. It's not that at all. It's, but if you press into the theology and the doctrine of their church and understand what's being taught, that's what's being taught because there's a degrading of the doctrine of the incarnation. Another example of this that, that we would run into a bunch is Islam. And so when you think of Islam and think of your friends that are Muslim, they would not agree with the doctrine of the incarnation. So uh, I have several friends that are Muslim and they are wonderful, wonderful people. Most of the time, unfortunately, when we think of someone who's Muslim, we think of the radical Muslims who are attacking and killing people. Your average Muslim person isn't that way at all. They're, they're wonderful and they're warm and they're hospitable and they're, they're funny and they're intelligent and they're a blast to hang out with. And the average Muslim person is not opposed to Jesus. You're not gonna get in a big fight with them about Jesus unless you get to the incarnation. So the average Muslim would look and say, we're real, we're, real, we're real big on Jesus. Like, we're all about Jesus, right? We believe he's one of the prophets. And we believe what he says and what he teaches and his moral example is valuable even to us. Now, we believe that Allah is God and we believe that his main prophet is Muhammad, but we also believe in Moses and we believe in Jesus and we're, we don't even argue those parts, right? But if you said to them, is he God? Would Jesus trump Mohammed? Would Jesus trump all these other teachings and your theology and your theologians and your doctrine? Well, that's where it separates. Where they would say, as long as he's not God, he's great. But you promote him as God, we, we have to tap out. And the doctrine of the incarnation, he wasn't God on the planet. He was a prophet on the planet. And what would happen is they would run into like Colossians chapter one, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Not part of it. He's not a spokesman for God. He's not an example of God. All of his fullness dwell in him. So you run into things like Mormonism. You run into things like Islam. Probably the, the, the presentation that is the newest and the one that, that we would run across kind of in, in evangelical circles the most is, is the presentation from a camp that we would call the Word of Faith movement or we would call the Prosperity Gospel or sometimes it, it gets nicknamed the Name It, Claim It movement, okay? Where we would look and say, when we look at that movement, that movement's about 100 years old or so, and we would look and say, when, when we look at the Word of Faith movement, the Prosperity Gospel movement, we cannot agree with them because we do not agree about the doctrine of the incarnation. So what they would teach is this. They would teach that when Jesus stepped out of heaven, he set aside his deity. He put his deity on layway. And when he stepped out of heaven, he came down to heaven, he came down to earth. And while he was on earth, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you go back a couple weeks in our teaching and pick up the one about the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that when I accept Christ as my Savior, my sins are forgiven, 
The Holy Spirit comes and lives within me. My body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's a deposit. He's a guarantee and and, uh, guarantees my place in heaven. So what they would say in essence is when Jesus stepped out of heaven, he set aside his deity, he came to earth and he's filled with the Holy Spirit just like you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what that means then is this, that because Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, like I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I can then do, in fact, I'm responsible to do the things that Jesus did. So Jesus did miraculous things through the power of the Holy Spirit. I am responsible to do miraculous things through the power of the Holy Spirit. So just like Jesus would speak and what he spoke would happen in reality, I can speak truth or speak authority and and I can make that my reality. Uh, Just like Jesus could heal someone, he could touch them. And he was so filled with the Holy Spirit that when he touched them, they were healed. I can touch you because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I can heal, I can heal you too if I'm filled enough with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just like Jesus could read someone's mind because there's different parts of the narrative where Jesus would sit down and and the Bible say, and Jesus knowing what they were thinking, right? He, He would read their mind. I can read your mind. And I can know what you're actually thinking. Uh, just like Jesus would claim something, I can claim something. I can claim a healing or I can claim a promise. And then it kind of goes all the way over to I can, I can believe God for a $65 million private jet, right? And so it's kind of that whole spectrum. But I am like Jesus. Jesus is like me. He was a person filled with the Holy Spirit I am a person filled with the Holy Spirit, so everything that Jesus did, I'm actually responsible to do. Their leaders would actually teach this, so they would say things like this, Jesus was not in the world to be God. Uh, Same person said he had to lay aside all of his divinity, all of it, every bit of it, when he came down to earth. Uh, Same guy, a guy named Todd White said, Jesus did not do what he did as God, he did it as a man in perfect relationship with God. And so you'll see Todd on YouTube and stuff like that, and he's healing people and speaking over them because he would look and say, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was a man completely filled with the Holy Spirit, and I am like that too. Another one of the theologians wrote this. He said, Jesus performed his miracle signs and wonders as a man in right relationship with God, not as God. If he performed his miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I'm responsible to pursue his lifestyle. So they would look and say, the doctrine of incarnation, that's wrong. He wasn't God. He was a man in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. I am to be a human being in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. And if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit enough, I'm responsible to do the things that Jesus did. So we would look at Jesus' miracles as an example, and we would say Jesus' miracles were demonstrations of his deity, not illustrations for our discipleship. We would look and say, did Jesus do miraculous things? We'd say, absolutely, Jesus did miraculous things, but he was demonstrating that he's not us. They're demonstrations of his deity They are not illustrations of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
So when Jesus came to earth, he shows up. I mean, that's a big lift, right? He shows her up and he's like, hey, by the way, I'm the promised Messiah. I'm God. The Father and I are one. I'm part of the Trinity. You should follow me and worship me. Well, that doesn't, you, you just don't buy into that immediately, right? So Jesus, for his followers, would do miraculous things. Can God, can anybody but God change water into wine? Can anybody but God uh, he lays, lay, raise Lazarus from the dead. Can anybody but God heal the blind man? Can, can anybody but God transport himself from one place to the, to the next? Can anybody but God do that? And so we would look at his miracles and we would say, well, those are things that only God can do. Therefore, when Jesus says something or Jesus teaches us something, we receive those with the authority of God, not just the moralistic examples of a moral man, Right? And you could say, well, Jeff, what about did the disciples and the apostles do miracles too? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Well, what about them? Well, the same authority was bestowed upon them. Because when we read Jesus' words in the Bible, we accept that as the word of God. When we read John, we read Peter, we read the apostles, we accept them as being given by God. The miracles help us to see that they had an authority, that we should listen to them differently. It gave a credibility and an authority to their word, what they were teaching. But today, today in this phase of the church, we would say, well, this is the authority. If, if I did a miraculous sign and then taught you something contrary to the Bible... I would look and say, I don't, I don't need to do a bunch of miraculous signs. I have the words of God. I have the authority of God. It's been given to me. It's been credible to me. It's been sourced to me. And Jesus, through his miraculous works, and the apostles and disciples, through their miraculous works, that's what was being affirmed in me and, and for me. Now, this is what I want you to hear. Everybody, look at me. If, even if you're on the internet, look at your screen right now. All right, look at me. Listen. I am not saying that I do not believe in miracles. I do. I am not saying that I do not believe in supernatural healing. I do. In fact, we're going to talk about healing next weekend. I am not saying that, that we need to believe that God can do more than we generally believe he can do. I do that. I believe all those kind of things. What I'm saying is this, that I am not responsible to mimic what Jesus did or the apostles did. I am responsible to yield to his teaching and his directives in my life, not to walk around and copy what he did, right? And Jesus did what he did to affirm his deity, not to illustrate my discipleship, right? It's even fascinating when you start thinking about how Jesus did miracles. You know, most of the time when Jesus did miracles, nobody knew that he did them, right? It was very common for him to heal somebody and then, and then say to them, hey, don't tell anybody. People would go ignore it. They'd do it anyways, but he, he never did it. Even like a big miracle, like the feeding of the 5,000 men, which was probably the feeding of 30,000 people, where he took like this homeschooler's lunch and multiplied it and fed all these people. He, he, when he did that, he wasn't like, okay, everybody listen, get your phones out, we're going to make this go viral, zero in on the fish and the loaves, watch this. He, he just did it. The disciples knew it, 
but the masses didn't. In fact, there were times that people would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you do a miracle, we'll follow you. And he said, no, I'm not going to do a miracle then. The, the work of faith is the believe in the one that was sent by God. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do something miraculous so that you follow me. You have to decide by faith to follow me, right? Jesus didn't do those things for sensationalism. He also didn't do miracles that could be easily called into question. He didn't, like, like when somebody heals you of neck pain, well, how do you know that they're healed? When someone, like, you know, makes your leg the same length, or whatever, well, how, how do you know that that's what's happening? Jesus would usually do miracles that were undeniable. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he did do that in front of a crowd. Lazarus was so dead that his sister said, it's my favorite verse in the Bible, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> I love that right? But he is, so, he is so dead that his sister was like, if you open that up, I mean, yikes, right? Nobody was like, ah, he could have been dead. Maybe he wasn't dead. It wasn't just Lazarus' testimony. I was dead. Nobody was watching. Now I'm alive. Everybody, when, when he healed the blind man in temple courts, everybody knew he was blind, so much so that the Pharisees called him in, questioned how he got his sight back and his parents to explain it. Nobody was like, I don't know, maybe he just had a cataract. He was blind. When he told the man, take up your mat and walk, everybody knew that he had been lame. It was like this public established fact. And Jesus, when he healed him, he didn't make like, you know what, Friday night, we're going to have a service and the band's coming and we're going to heal the guy. He didn't do any of that. He would just kind of do it. He would do it in someone's lives. In fact, when you read the scriptures, there are many, 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 many more people that Jesus did not heal than that he did heal. If you asked Jesus to heal you, if you played the odds, the average answer was no. So he did these things for very specific reasons. And it, it, was, it was never for sensational things. It was to illustrate his deity. When the, when the apostles and the disciples healed, they would do it in the name of Christ and give all glory to Christ. They never took money for it. If people tried to pay them, they wouldn't, do, they, they wouldn't do any of that. They didn't make this big sensational thing. They were doing it to illustrate their authority in Christ. So when the apostle John in 2 John says, hey, watch out, careful. I would look and I'd say, well, let, let's be careful. Like when we see... Someone who will only heal somebody if the camera's rolling. I'd be careful. When we see a, a miracle happen, and there's really no way to confirm it, you know, I, I would be careful. When, when, we, when we go out to document miracles, and we're healing people from these, why aren't we in the hospitals doing that? Like, I, I would be careful. And when it happens on cue, you know, 1042 every Sunday morning, just as the band crescendos, I, I would be careful of that, right? And anybody who gives any version of Jesus is not fully God, fully man, I would be careful. Because if I say Jesus set aside his deity, I have demoted him. 
And if I say, and because he set aside his deity, I'm just like Jesus, I have promoted myself. And I'd be careful. I would double click on that. I would watch out for that. I was talking to some college students about kind of this whole thing. And, and um, the question came up, like, what, you know, how should this work? And I, I, I said it this way. I said, I said if, we're in, if we're in services, if you come to Grace and you walk away from a public Jesus meeting like this, you walk away from Grace Church and you're saying anything that sounds like this. Jeff was amazing. Lee sexy and and a great speaker and and he was incredible and so funny and so insightful and the band Ezra was leading it is so amazing I love it when the band is this and that and the other thing and the Jeff was amazing and the band was amazing and the Holy Spirit just showed up and the, it, you could just feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and if you walk away and that's your lunch that's your your lunch conversation. I would probably look at you and say, I feel like we missed the mark. If you're talking about the guy or the experience or even, and I want to be real careful here, even the Holy Spirit. Now, if you walked away and went to lunch and you said, man, God's word convicted me or comforted me or encouraged me or, or instructed me. And, and Jeff made that clear. It was so helpful that he did that. And the music, when the music was aligned with God's word and then we started singing about Christ, I have a, I have a bigger image, a bigger view of Christ in my life and the words of the music helped me to respond. I, I couldn't think of what to say, but man, when, when Ezra led that song, I suddenly could think of what to say, and I wanted to say that. And when I went to church and left between the God's word and God's people in that experience, what I walk away is I, I am more committed to Christ than I was when I walked in there. I understand the heart and the mind of Jesus more than I did. I told the students, I said, now we're probably hitting closer to a home run. That the, the point of the church is Christ. That the point of your discipleship is Christ. It's, it's Jesus above all else, not the messengers of Jesus, not even the signs and wonders of Jesus, not even the moving of the spirit of God who will point you to Jesus, but it's Jesus who is above all. I love the way that Paul says it in Colossians chapter one, listen to these words. He says this, verse 15, the son, that's Christ, the son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. For in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is above all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the church, of the body. 
He, Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything, Jesus might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were enemies from God, alienated from God, and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It's Jesus who is the name above all names. It's Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in my life investment and in the proclamation of the church and in the work of the people of God, Jesus is to be highlighted. Not the guy that has the special superpowers. He certainly is not to be demoted where Jesus and I are kind of basically the same thing. But he is to be the object of our worship and that's what you want. You don't want a good guy on that cross because he can't raise himself from the dead. When your life is blown up and your life is a mess, you don't want to cry out to a moral leader. You want to cry out to a good and gracious God. When, when, when you're in trouble and the pain from your loss is more than, than words could create, I don't need the example of a person who died well. I need a God who can provide me with eternal life and the hope of heaven. When your marriage is blowing up and you have been in that cycle of a fight that you cannot get out of, you don't need the wise counsel of a wise person who has a limited perspective from an earthly position. You need the resurrection power of a God who can change both of you. I don't want a divinely inspired human being I need God, and I'm grateful that he came in a way that I can understand him, and I can interact with him, and I can know him, and I can translate his love into my life. And if you pull that away, and from the start, people have tried to pull it away, you're left with some version of you gotta get yourself to heaven. And if that's the case, we're doomed. But if you see the humility and the love of your creator God, who would come to earth in flesh, attach his body to his mother's, live among his own creation, allow his own creation to take his life, and then by his own authority raise again from the dead. So you get the position of Isaiah suddenly, whoa is me. Who am I that the King of kings and the Lord of lords would be mindful of me? He loves me, and I yield my life to him. 
I am not him. So I worship. We had these big God conversations. We had one last week and Josiah was leading worship last week. He said something that caught me. He said this. He said, when confronted with the greatness of Christ, our only worthwhile response is worship. What else am I supposed to do? There's, there's nothing else I can do but to bend my knee before that great God. I think that's the way we should wrap this weekend. I think in our hearts and individually, you should bend your knee before the God-man. And then through the music, we're not, we're not going to sing together, but we can worship together. We can give the praise and the adoration, the exaltation to our God, our Lord, see, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me while the band settles in? Jesus, help us with this. Lord, it's, it's moving, it's overwhelming that you would love us so. And if we demote you in any way in our lives, we've put ourselves in the position of deserving. Made you the one obligated instead of us. So God, in all of the small ways and in all of the big ones, Jesus, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help us position Christ properly? Help us to watch out but mostly help us to fix our eyes on you and to let you be who you are and respond to your calling in our lives. Jesus, in these still moments, would you work in deep ways and would you powerfully interact with us even now?